can't believe it's Thursday. It's Friday. Shut up. So, uh, so yeah, so we're recording this on Friday, so it's coming out the day after Valentine's, but yeah, on Valentine's Day. So I'm starting with a uh, fantastic breakfast. I have, I've got smoked trout instead of smoked salmon for a little change, but I'm going to okay. do the full English muffins and poached eggs and hollandaise fandango. Oh, a fandango. Yeah. But I mean, technically it's sort of eggs royale, but I'm going with fandango. Yeah. Because I don't think the word's used often enough. No, I agree. And then I've got my little Sunday Zoom call I do. Then I'm going to, I've got some lovely champagne and I'm going to have champagne and flit about in the gorgeous gown I'm making myself and the beautiful Catherine Delish robe I bought and take a million photos. Yeah, of course. I, uh, I might have. Do you have a I, tripod? Oh, I've needed a tripod for ages, so I finally ordered one. It's coming tomorrow, but I may have got one that comes with a ring light as well. Good. Because flattering. And then I'm going to make myself an excellent dinner. I've got steak, I've got dauphinoise, some seared tender stem broccoli, a little red wine sauce. Good grief. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, and I'm going to make hazelnut, not hazelnut, Nutella panna cotta. Oh, fuck off. Oh. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. How am I... You- You've made me hungry. I've eaten two bowls of pasta today already. <laughs> I'm so excited for the spanakotta, which oh, I'm so glad that one of you guys, I can't remember who, why, or the context, but someone brought up gelatin in the group chat the other day and it reminded me I needed gelatin for panacotta making. I posted that picture of 1950s horrifying jelly, jelly food. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, will be hilarious to make. But <laughs> I love, um, I really like, I'm not sure if aesthetic is quite the right word and I don't want to say vibes because I'm nearly 30 but I like the vibes of the kind of uh, 1950s like recipes that came on the back of a packet oh yeah um that kind of thing the uh, the old recipes subreddit is amazing for that and I've started slowly acquiring vintage cookbooks yeah, I like the old recipes subreddit, but they always seem to be in the middle of a craze that I can't find the source of. So they're like, ha, there's five posts saying, I've made this recipe. I'm like, don't know which recipe it is, though. But thanks to those crazes, I tried that Armenian perok, the cake pie jam situation. Yes, which I then did after you modified the recipe to make it doable for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very ugly and delicious. Yours was very pretty and delicious. Thank you. Um yeah, so I reread uh, Marguerite Patton's Everyday Cooking book the other day, which is like a 60s, very British housewifey book. And oh. it's I, I just a whole really... new genre of things to buy you for birthdays and Christmas now then. What, vintage cookbooks? Oh, yeah, do it. Love it. Vintage cookbooks and vintage sewing books, like the one I sent you a screenshot of. Yes. Oh. But yeah, so I'm going to finish the gown today, hopefully, maybe tomorrow. Nice. And then I need to, like clean my flat because i've got a maintenance visit next week but then i'm going to start another jacket maintenance visit that will maybe fix your front door maybe i'm not going to get my hopes up yeah i've accepted that dystopia lux is the way forward well i'm not sure if the way forward is exactly it i was really hoping this because this my back balcony is still really covered in snow and i was kind of hoping it would melt so i could take photos out there in the gown but i don't think it's going to have gone by sunday can you wear heels could but i'm not going to go out in the snow on heels because even three steps is enough for me to break myself oh my god so buffering is right now the best thing oh my god sorry. <laughs> okay so famously buffy the vampire slayer has a musical episode yes. it was like the first major tv series to do the big musical episode thing i love it deeply uh buffering obviously 
is a recap podcast where they do a song at the end of each episode and for the musical episode they did a musical episode so they uh-huh. kept randomly bursting into song through the podcast episode very good and it was amazing it was so good it came out the other day including because the women that host it together they were married when the podcast started and they split up as the podcast went on I remember and now, telling me, yeah yeah they're now very good friends and they did a hilarious song called you can always get divorced <laughs> about Anya and Sander I like that <laughs> it was great the whole thing was great um and kind of helped me remember that I can still love the show despite the renewed stuff coming out about just how fucking awful Joss Whedon is yeah that's a thing yeah this is very separating I mean, I feel art like from TV artists. shows and especially things like TV shows, the art, I know it may have been, what do you do, direct it, write it? He kind of created and directed it. Yeah, whatever. But the art is made up of all of the people. Yeah, and there are some other people who were, like the actors in it, obviously I love most of them. Uh, There's some amazing writers like Marcy Knoxon and Jane Espenson have gone on to write for lots of other shows I really love as well. And they're both amazing. Um I also like with the whole separating art from artist thing, I think you, I look at where the money is going. Like Joss Whedon isn't making a bunch of money off me watching my Buffy DVDs that I've had forever. No. Whereas like something with like something like Harry Potter, I wouldn't buy Harry Potter merch now. I wouldn't yeah. go to the parks or buy the game that's coming out or any of that shit because that's yeah. all still going straight to JK Rowling and I don't want her to get my money. Oh, J.K. Rowling, you massive disappointment. Uh, I'm still seeing reviews come in and out about the Watch series. Mark Burroughs actually just uh, posted quite an interesting deep dive on it. Yeah. Um, did you read it? I did. Oh, I thought you weren't. I didn't because I thought you weren't reading them. I'm not reading most of them, but that one seemed like it wasn't so much a specific review of an episode as like kind of an overview of how it got made and how people are reacting. And that I don't mind so much because it's not like his deep personal reaction yeah fair enough all right I'll i mean it is a bit. later it, it's quite an interesting overview article i'll link to it in the show notes okay. obviously we've still not seen it it still doesn't have a uk release date uh because of the schedule which i will have ready to publish soon i've aimed yeah you i know I send saying. me a draft i thought you oh no i didn't me verbally but i'm recording at the same time it's not like i'm noting it down no, I thought I'd written it down and sent it to you already. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> With the months we're aiming to talk about it, we may end up having to like not watch what it legally. What month is that? Get April. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we are doing Lords and Ladies next month. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. I've already got a rough version of what's going to be our bonus episode to go with Lords and Ladies. Actually. Oh, what's that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll beep that out to uh, to increase mystique. <laughs> yes, because we are so fascinating and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, lone wolves, ranger type characters. Yeah. Definitely I'm... not three Gimli's in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm more of a Merriel Pippin than an Aragorn, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, all right, fair. I am a small... I'm a small disaster gay that shouldn't be given sharp objects. Since I've like, hey, what am I? Put a Lord of the Rings character on me. You've just watched it all. Oh, oh, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say you're offended as long as it's not Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've got enough elfin vibes. I think you're hanging out in Rivendell somewhere. 
okay yeah no that's fair i want to be immortal let's be honest i'm not really going to leave the comfort of my own home if i can help it i can see you sort of wafting about some trees and something floaty all right cool yeah i'm up you're not like i love you but you're not like full galadriel no no um, no that's uh all all she'll love me and despair is a little bit above my energy levels on a friday afternoon (laughs) i mean it's very much my vibe but some can love me and get a bit worried (laughs) all shall tolerate me but be mildly irked yeah (laughs) i mean should we just like make a podcast otherwise we're gonna (laughs) otherwise we're gonna become a lord of the rings recap podcast and no one needs that Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And today is part three of our discussion of Small Gods. Small Gods. Not doing the tagline this time. (laughs) See, I went with with a twist. I went with large ideas. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's obviously far cooler than my one, which you poo-pooed. I didn't poo-poo it. I just you poo-pooed it, Joanna. <laughs> Note on spoilers before we crack on. This is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers for the book. We're on Small Gods, but we'll avoid revealing any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Across a searing desert leading a terrible torture. Ooh, terrible torturer. I like that. Oh, yeah. Back on the alliteration bus. Fuck yeah. Right. Have you got anything to uh, follow up on? Um, no. Excellent. Well, kind of, but it goes into your loincloth watch, so. Okay, great. We'll say follow up for the loincloth then. <laughs> In that case, Francine, would you like to tell me what happened previously on Small Gods? Absolutely. Previously on Small Gods, the Omnian delegation makes its way to a Phoebe, where they're politely, but heretically, guided through a labyrinth and into a walled palace. Luckily and tragically, Brother's memory means he can find his way back, which he does, wants to find philosophy and wants to reluctantly aid Vorbis in his dastardly plot. The Omnians attack their classical hosts, taking over a Phoebe and burning down the precious library. Brother's memory comes to the rescue once again. The regretful ragamuffin skims through the scrolls and retains as much knowledge as possible before escaping by sea with Alma's tortoise, down-to-earth philosopher Didactylos, his practically-minded apprentice Ern, and the fiery sergeant Simony. Vorbis takes chase in a bigger boat, which is scuppered by the goddess of the sea. Improbably, Vorbis survives. Brother and Om also go overboard, and all three wash up on a scalpy-infested shore. Excellent. Was it Scalpy? I wrote that from memory. Scalpy, Sculpy, something like that. I didn't even look up if they were real birds. Scalbies. Scalby. Uh, I also didn't. I was going to do a whole bit on them and then yeah. realise that if they're meant to be corvids, I might go down a rabbit hole. And There's so much that's really quite important to mention in this section that I, re- I had to stop myself on almost all the trivia. I did all of my episode planning yesterday and I honestly don't remember planning any of it. So uh, <laughs> you went in some weird trance of I've been doing that a lot lately. Pandemic brain is real. Yeah. Well, at least you got an episode plan out of it. I can see it. It's in front of me. I've somehow through hyper focus and the vague amount of disassociation this week come with a, come up with an episode plan and nearly a whole dress. <laughs> well done. <laughs> 
Right, sorry. So, um, fuck. I'm here. I'm paying attention. Good. And Good. Uh, I'll tell us what happened this time. I can't guide you through any kind of breakdown over Zoom. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All I can do is put pixel sunglasses on my face. That is the, the extent of my... You're an excellent therapist, Francine. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, yeah, so summarise, Joanna. Tell us what happens this time. This time on Small Gods, Brother Anon wander the desert as Brother resolves to head back to Omnia. Om initially refuses to join, especially after Brother finds an unconscious Vorbis and carries him on his journey. After a certain amount of stropping, Om follows along and resolves to find water in the desert to keep his one dehydrated believer alive. We learn that Urn, Didactylos and Simony survived the storms and they land on the Omnian coast. Om suggests using Vorbis's bait to get water from the lion's den, and Didactylos is confronted with a crowd of optimistic followers as the philosophers and the atheists reach Omnia. Didactylos preaches, ish, and in the desert, small gods tease brother with dreams of a hermit's feast. He meets an unculent Anangus before moving on, finding the dead temple of an old god. In a brief Ophibian interlude, we see the city retaken, and the tyrant decides he's had quite enough of this Omnian nonsense. In the desert, Vorbis makes a miraculous recovery and knocks Brother out as Om watches on. Vorbis attempts to dispose of our Chelonian deity, but a case of mistaken identity allows Om to follow as Vorbis takes an unconscious Brother back to the Citadel. A week later, Brother wakes in the Citadel to find Vorbis has been declared the new prophet, and he's to be made an archbishop for his role in Vorbis's ascension. Vorbis shows Brother his latest creation, a huge metal turtle for roasting sinners. Lutzi watches as Brother wrestles with personal philosophy, and Simony and Ern prepare their own vicious turtle. Lutzi interferes with the tempering of the steel. Om heads back to the Citadel as preparations begin for Vorbis's inauguration. Simony prepares for the revolution as Ern gives Brother a heads up. Brother takes a stand as Brother takes a stand as Simony's war turtle fails, and Vorbis turns the other cheek before ordering Brother's death. As Brother lies chained to a burning turtle, Om grabs the eagle by the balls and intercedes. His perfectly timed landing brings about the end of Vorbis. (laughs) (laughs) His perfectly timed landing brings about the end of Vorbis and inspires a wave of belief among the Omnians. Om rises as a great god and an unchained brother negotiates the terms of worship. Unfortunately, they're rudely interrupted by the arrival of fleets from Sort, Ephib and Jelly Baby. Dibla negotiates his own favourable terms with the god, Vorbis wakes in the desert of death, and Brother meets the troops on the beach and offers Omnia's surrender. His peaceful terms are slightly undermined by the arrival of the Omnian army, and Brother almost gives up, frustrated with his fellow man. Om, high on fresh belief, visits Cori Celesti and demands the help of his fellow deities. The gods stop the impending war as the soldiers find common ground. In the end, Brother is the new Cenobiarch, uh, Simony is to be the new head of the Quisition, and Lutzi heads home. 100 years later, Brother lives the last minutes of a good life before meeting death in the desert, and he carries Vorbis forward. Well done. I'm God, really, a lot really happened. glad I didn't have to write a summary for that. <laughs> I was so just thinking much. to myself, I'm so glad I didn't have to do it previously on for the last part of this book, because like everything happens. <laughs> so much happens in this section. <laughs> well done. I feel like I just uh, had a little run. So, Helicopter and Loincloth Watch. Cool, yeah. Page 289 in my section. St. Ungulant so is... <laughs> <laughs> I tweeted this, like, back I when know. I first read the book <laughs> at the end of last month. Uh, St. Ungulant is wearing some sort of minimalist loincloth, insofar as it was possible to tell under the beard and hair. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. also... Uh, 
there's another little reference to uh, it's a million chance, million to one chance, so it must work. Yeah, it's a million to one chance if we're lucky. Yeah, I think was the uh, is on being picked up by Eagle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saint Ungulant though. Um, he is the person that I got confused with real life in my head, uh, somewhat aptly. Uh, who, well, th- kind of hallucinates himself a beautiful feast every day. Uh, well, the except the gods, gods hallucinate it for him, manifest it. I don't really know what's happening. Yeah, uh, but he's a fun character. I'm sad for the lion. I'm sad for the lion. Uh, I'm, I'm choosing to believe he woke up and got better. Yes, me too. <laughs> I uh, I definitely did not think about trying to build in lots of things where I made fun of you for your whole hermit's dream. Actually, it's from small gods bit, and then I decided not to be a horrible person. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to start that kind of thing. No, uh, there's a lot more for you to mock me for, let's be fair. <laughs> that sounded more threatening than I wanted it to be. I just mean, we could both start picking up on this kind of thing and, you know, eventually we won't have time for any of the rest of the sections. <laughs> We're just going to end up bringing out episodes that are just two hours of us roasting each other. <laughs> In a vaguely Discworld-related manner, yeah. Yeah, with the utmost love and respect, obviously. Uh, so quotes, quotes. Mm. Mm. Um, I think I think mine comes first. Yes, it does. Mine's right near the end. Yeah. Uh, mine is when Brother stands on the shore talking to the delegations from everywhere. And he says, and one day people will say, why didn't they sort it all out back then? Before all those people died. Now that, Before all those people died. Now we have that chance. Aren't we lucky? Um, which is just, you can tell this whole bit is very Pratchett getting annoyed about the world. Yeah. Um, and kind of like a little honourable mention related quote is after this kind of fails, a couple of pages later, he says, everything happens because things have happened before. Stupid. Mm-hmm. Which again. <laughs> that is very, very Pratchett getting annoyed at people. Yeah, it could like pick, pick a region, and mm-hmm. look back at its history, and it's this, isn't it? It's why couldn't they sort it out when they had the chance? So it's like, well, everyone has the chance to sort things out. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Gestures broadly at the pandemic. Well, yeah, not yeah, <laughs> not quite, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, I know. Obviously, you're talking about much bigger concepts. That's just the micro version that's very close to me right now as opposed to the larger macro what the fuck is wrong with everyone all the time yeah i mean i i feel like people are trying to sort out the pandemic at least rather than perpetuate it as a reason to build war machines well true so far we haven't (laughs) ended up with any giant armored turtles thanks to the pandemic cross fingers give it time bees anyway yours i think it's vaguely related Mine is very related, actually, and it's slightly later in that same section, so very near the end, uh, and it's short. One, this is not a game. Two, here and now, you are alive. Yes. And this is the final declaration of the gods that is brought about by Om, in one case, twisting the Thunder God's arm up behind his back. Yeah. And I just really like it because it's very easy especially at the moment to feel very sort of disconnected everything yeah yeah and it's very nice to be confronted with this no right actually life is very much happening in front of you 
yeah. Um, I'm I cried a couple times during this last section. I must admit when they Same. when they all went up to try and grab people out of the ship and they weren't sure who it was. But it didn't matter. And yeah, yeah. when they're all sort and of that, gathered and hiding and yeah, yeah and and that, and that I think quote, so, yeah. sometimes you sort of need to be shaken and to be told that here and now you are alive. Yes. Not yes. that this is giving me some radical change of outlook and now I'm going to start living my life much better, but you know. It's added another little voice in the yeah. in- internal, eternal argument. Yes. Eternal, internal, I'd say. Eternal, internal argument. Also, um, not a full quote, but just honourable mention to the combination of words, slightly lions, because that made yes. me chorsal. Yeah, I've got that noted down as well. I'm glad you put it in somewhere because I couldn't find anywhere to put it in. <laughs> I couldn't, that's why I've just shoehorned it in here. I just really lions. Slightly lions. (laughs) Also new band name, I do. Yes. (laughs) We're slightly lions. (laughs) It's also just really fun to say. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. Slightly lions. Uh turning to drizzle by noon. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so characters. Characters. So the small god in the desert is what we have as the first character. Yeah. Uh, this is Om's sort of standing guard over brother when he sleeps because the small gods are trying to sort of take him and Om's very, no, this is my believer. You can't have him. Yeah. And most of these small gods are nothing more than sort of wisps of belief floating around. They don't, they Potential can't articulate. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's one that remembers being a god and remembers being worshipped. Yeah. And it sort of ties into a lot of Om's motivation. Obviously, Om's motivation is to not become one of these just wisps of belief. But here yeah. he's really confronted with the what it means to be this failed god in the desert. It yes, it's it's very sad, isn't it? It is very sad. It's a very sad moment. This wasn't just a small god. This was a small god who hadn't always been small. And this god remembers temples and pyramids and sacrifices. Oh, am I? Sorry. But can't, yeah, can't quite connect them into a narrative. It's a, just a vague sense of great things lost. There's, yeah. Um, and he can't sorry, remember just, his name. Yeah. Uh, there was possibly, for most small gods, there's possibly the germ of hope, the knowledge and belief. Might day you might be more than you were now. But how much worse to have been a god and now be no more than a smoky bundle of memories? Mm. It's yikes. See, I wonder if in this hypothetical universe, um, one of the gods who've been a god, if they got another of their million to one chances and became built again, again, whether they'd have a better time of it because they knew how the story went, or whether most of them are just too. I mean, if you look at drunk um, power. Yeah, if kind you look, of needed brother to rein him back in. Yeah, I think they would immediately leap back to drunk on power. Like one of the big things we learn through this book is that gods aren't clever. Yeah, yeah, not, and that they sort of need that dose of humanity that like brother gives on. Yeah, to become clever. Yes, and Dibbler helps a little bit. And Dibbler helps a little bit. Yes, uh, the bit where Dibbler like negotiates with Om. <laughs> so this, can you do me a favor and just put in a commandment about yogurt? Yeah, <laughs> I like how Om's bit was like structured as a as a Bible verse through that bit. That was quite funny. 
That whole section was great. Thou shalt not subject thy god to market forces. <laughs> I was trying to work out where to shoehorn that line in as well, because I love it. Uh, so next is St. Ungulant and Angus, who we've covered. Yes, uh, the hermit's bit, as you said, this is sort of the hermit's dream thing. We got confused about a couple of weeks ago. Um, Very generous of you to say we. <laughs> I'm being nice. I'm capable of that occasionally. Um, yeah, and Angus, who seems to be an imaginary friend until he's not. Yeah, I want to know more about Angus. And I know it's just in as a silly little joke that, like... Definitely no one... one of those things that would never be as satisfying as the... As wandering. the mystery. Yeah. But I enjoyed that little moment, the little hermit interlude. <laughs> yeah. Up on a pole in the middle of the desert as an anchorite. Which I again was one of those things I could have gone down a research habit hole of yeah. hermits in deserts and decided that I needed to not keep doing rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hold on, I've got a bit buzzing on my end. Microphone thing, pain the ass today. Uh, and then he's faster, Benji. I've forgotten. This is when all of the troops are heading to Om, and he's this one little guy who's been sort of caught up with the troops. And so oh, he's just yeah, yeah, yeah. having a lovely time. He's just sort of joined in. He's from a very small tribe, a small nation of marsh dwelling nomads of whose existence all the other countries were in complete ignorance. Uh, and they all worship a newt god that we then meet at Cori Celesti. And Fastbench just has a lovely time. You know, he meets a lot of people. He learns how to cook fish. He gets given some nice shiny things and then he goes home. It's a yeah. little adventure. And then, so those are those are the only really new characters that are worth talking about. Yeah. Uh, but checking back in with some existing ones. Uh, Loot Z. And I talked in the first part of Small Gods about his little interferences. Yeah. And the whole point is he is there as a history monk. He's just meant to observe. Yes. And of course he doesn't. He sort of intercedes with brother and talks him into taking action. Changes the course of history. Yeah, I like the sort of plot twist at the end. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I like the plot twist at the end where Lucy goes back to the abbot and sort of says, you know how that was sort of meant to be a hundred years of war? Well, I sort of made it all a bit nicer. Yeah. I would say, oh, all right, fine, as long as it works out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, but who's playing a... chess with death. Yes, who can't remember how the horses go. Yes. <laughs> which is referenced, actually, in an earlier book. There's, uh, I can't remember which one. I think it's Mortal Reaper Man. It might even be one of the witches ones where yeah. um, someone talks about playing chess with death and he says, yeah, I hate it when they want to do that because I can never remember where the horses go. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that this is stayed and the tiny little thread that's run through. Yeah. But yeah, I like that Lutze has decided to change the course of history because he can see a better outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Rebel history monk, we like it. You would, wouldn't you? And then Didactylos and Urn. Uh, there's just one really, really good moment between the two of them, which is when Didactylos sees, not sees, but realises the moving turtle thing. Yeah. This big, And he's sort of furious at this... Uh, seeing Ern take what has until then been philosophical concepts and turn it into weapon. Yeah. And then Ern kind of has his own moment of fury later on when Simony 
is like, well, what difference does it make if brother dies this way or that way? Um, the first way being dies as a symbol and the second way dies as part of like an attempt to rescue him. And, and yeah. it's like, you mean you don't know? And like yeah. this realisation of what a maniac he's kind of tied himself to, I think. And what he's got himself into and yeah. basically being very well-intentioned and just wanting to make stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think Ern gets it. I, I wish we spent like just the tiniest bit more time with Didactylos and Ern, or they had like their own book eventually. Yeah, yeah. Just to um, see that ju- that journey that he goes journey. on. I'm sorry, <laughs> I was trying to think of another word. I don't know because I think it like it makes it clear enough in the. Oh yeah, I don't think it needs more. I just really enjoyed reading yeah. about it. Yeah, that's fair. Like I could read a few pages of them debating. I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, obviously bigger characters. We've got Brother. Brother. Brother goes through a bit. He does. He is the desert personified, I think we can conclude by the end. Absolutely. He keeps going on about it in little references, doesn't he? And then weird things like he'd, he'd been as happy as he'd ever been. In the... God, I'm fucking buzzing again. God damn it. I mean, I can't hear anything if it helps. Um, I'm not sure it does help because it's my recording. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this headphone cord but if i keep it like this it's okay sorry okay so yeah brother personification of the desert yeah um like you said odd little things like he's been as happy as he'd ever been in the desert which seems very strange considering it was a horrible horrible experience um well it's kind of... of the simplicity of purpose yeah he has nothing to do but try and get somewhere yeah. and survive yeah i think his whole what he goes through, especially with his faith in this section and what he learns about himself is fantastic. He starts off this section, he's so frustrated with Om mm. because he's sort of saying, look, if you're going to exist, if you're going to be worshipped, you have to take responsibility. Yeah. And you can see this is something that has never occurred to Om before, that he has a role in this transaction other than just receiving. Yeah. That, 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 for it to work and for him to survive, there needs to be give as well as take because Om's motivation is largely survival. Yeah. Yeah. Brother brings up several times that everything has to be a two way street kind of thing. Yeah. And, and he goes through this loss of faith where he, there's a line about nothing means anything anymore. If Forbes, if you yeah. know, a madman's going to be the Snobby arc. And what it brings him to is when Om has this huge influ- influx of belief and is the great God again, brother uses his powerlessness to negotiate yeah he stands there and said i have literally nothing to bargain with but you should do this and you should do this because i have nothing to bargain with yeah and it's almost like he's come through faith and out the other side okay kind of if you know he, he went from faith to belief to Obviously, like, I know you exist because you're a tortoise and they're very difficult to not believe in, which was just a line that really made me giggle. Something very certain about the existence of a tortoise. Yeah. To this other side of it where it's almost back to faith again. Yeah. But it's faith on the basis that he has given on some humanity. Yeah, it's yeah, it's almost faith in in ethics and this is the right thing to do. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Good. Good old brother. He's uh, it's an interesting fast track character development, isn't it? To have somebody absorb an entire library. 
and what that does to him. Yeah. I I feel like it was skipped over a bit how mental that would have made him for quite a while, but obviously for narrative progression it did have to be rushed slightly, but yeah, you get the little bits of oh god, this is so difficult. My brain is proce- my brain has started to process the information. Why do I know this about jellyfish? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's very <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's he's very adaptable because he, especially in the early parts of the book, is so easygoing and sort of just does what he's told. When he starts to think for himself and take more independence and then takes in all that knowledge, he continues to adapt really quickly. Yeah. Without really changing the core of who he is, which is someone who does sort of want the best for things. Yes. Yeah, so all of his belief, even if it was misguided at the start, was kind of around a, a core of... I believe this is the best for people. Yes, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, and Om, similarly, ups and downs in his dealings, isn't he? As in, he's he's the down-to-earth cynic god for a little bit and then the manic the great high god. god and then is kind of dragged back down to earth and then goes and puts a proper god's arm behind its back. I enjoy his sudden influx of belief in this moment of being completely high on his own supply. And then mm, that was a very uh, nice dramatic bit. It is. It's one of those, it was almost off screen action again. If you, a bit like with Afib being sacked, there's not this huge depiction of him rising up as a great god. It's Vorbis is dead. Everyone started believing. Om's a great god now. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it happened in real time still. It wasn't oh, like, yeah, yeah. blacked out for. A week, like with the hours, like with the sacking, yeah. Um, but yes, but it's a nice moment for him, and I he goes it was quite on... nicely descriptive, actually. When I thought, it, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not criticizing how it's written. I uh, let me find the actual page. Fairly, fairly, fairly. Uh, it was a revelation that does something to people watching. For a start, they believe with all their heart, and. Then it's just, and then a voice, he is mine. Yeah. And the great God rose over the temple. Yeah. And it's that when he becomes the great God again, his brother is still very much his believer. Yes. He doesn't go, oh, I've got loads of believers now. I don't need you. Yeah. it's. I, I like that they called back at some point. I think it was during this section to his first believer that got stoned to death and how that had mattered to him. Like it had been mentioned earlier and kind of skimmed over and then yeah. mentioned again. I was like, that did kind of suck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because it was the fact, it, yeah. it was, it was Poor one of mine it. and it yeah. was a loss. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot on Om apart from, you know, I'm happy for him. He's uh, for all being a great God that goes through lots of character development. He's quite simple. He is. He is. As God is. I want to be. He's more complex than a lot of the gods, but yeah, I like how he. I like how he just goes up and kind of barbarals his way through the final celestial conflict. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, this might make noise, but my foot's just gone to sleep. Good, good. Yep, I am so professional. Uh, so yeah, Simony, Simony, good old weirdo Simony. I'm not his... sure I'd have put him in charge of anything after this, to be honest, but rather clearly see something well i think he sees the zealotry and you know the idea of simony being the head of the inquisition is to root out all of the inquisitors and exquisitors yeah and he does hate 
yeah very much so and that takes the zealous passion and it's it's you've still got some of the slow burn zealotry early on which i wrote down in the stupidest possible way in my original notes oh we know you sort of that way of writing something with a descriptor descriptor so you do like an exclamation mark like you do like femme george yeah uh so i i went to write zealot exclamation mark simony but because i've been listening to lots of uh panic at the disco recently i wrote Zealot at the cinema, Simony. Zealot at the Simony. <laughs> yep. Good, yeah. <laughs> My new Terry Pratchett themed emo band. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find that. He's just got this, he's furious that Didactylos won't preach the way a priest would. And he just stands there and tells them facts. He doesn't try and convince them. Yeah. And he's so ready to take down the church. And his moment of uh, thinking that brother's death can be symbolic, like you said, one of the things Ern po- points out is that Vorbis is so evil because Vorbis creates copies of himself and that Simony has become yeah, just as bad. And it's well, a bit like... Yeah, I mean, Simony also says things like we... Yeah, says things very much like Vorbis and that we need this kind... We don't need facts. We need truth, which is different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... He's so, there's something so determined about him. It's like we were saying, you know, Om sort of likes the atheist because it's the the hate, hate that's the other side of love on the coin. It's yeah, almost yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And when it comes to this, that final confrontation, the Omnians against Source and the Ephebians and the Jelly Babians. Sure. And Simony sta- yeah. stands there as an angry atheist and says, well, we've got God on our side. Yeah. Don't think you can get around this by existing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was another line that made me giggle. But yes, as Simony starts his transition into Vorbis, there is, of course, Vorbis. Vorbis? What a prick. Yeah. But like 600 words of that. Okay. <laughs> you told me you had like a thousand word thesis. Have you managed to summarise the entire thing into what a prick? I mean, no, not really, because he's very intra he's yeah see i've got so much here like you said you wanted to say some bits about it so why don't you start and i'll try and expand okay well the thing that i really focused on looking at vorbis's actions in the section was what his actual fucking motivation is yeah because from when he's obviously pretending to be unconscious and walking or pretending to not be there and he's walking with brother and om in the desert and he hears brother talking to om as tortoise he knows om is the tortoise yes he knows that is the god he claims to do everything for yes and when he wakes up and he knocks brother out and he tries to throw on away he literally tries to throw his god away yes so his motivation is not the church i mean we know he doesn't really believe in on because he's become focused on the shell yeah. of it the center his brain is so closed off but theoretically his belief is still in the church and he throws the fi- the, the central part of it the actual god away he wants the god to die. Yeah. So faith isn't his motivation, but it's not power for the sake of power either. No. He's not a power-hungry psycho. It's not uh, to go back to the sort of comparisons with Dios from Pyramids. You know, Dios's motivation was maintaining the old ways above everything else. And with yeah. Borbis, it's not even really that. No. And it was something that kind of frustrated me through a lot of the section because I started to feel like maybe it's not the best written villain because there's a lack of motivation there until I hit a point where it talks about when he's 
so mad he's come through the other side of madness into this kind of cold logic and it was a theme that does it say that yeah i um sorry let me find the page i did actually write this one down Cusp had formed an opinion that Vorbis was somewhere on the other side of madness, ordinary madness he could deal with. In his experience, there were quite a lot of mad people in the world. Uh, Vorbis had passed right through that red barrier and had built some kind of logical structure on the other side. Yes. But there's another line earlier on that same page. um, And this is the Inquisitor kind of enjoys hurting people. That's why he's in the Inquisition. Um, Hurting people because you enjoyed it, that was understandable. Vorbis just hurt people because he decided that they should be hurt without passion, even with a kind of hard love. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of central thing of his motivation. Well, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the fact is there is no logical answer to the question, what's his motivation? Because it is his madness as his motivation. It's all self-contained. There's no there's no reasoning around it. His, His utter conviction is that he is in possession of the truth and therefore whatever he believes to be correct must be correct um it's it's, it's you know circ- it's circular reasoning it's um yeah. a is true because b is true so b is true because a is true yeah um so in Forbes's case i am holy and therefore what i do is holy and therefore yeah. i'm holy and therefore um so and the thing is someone as clever as Vorbis wouldn't have any difficulty in constructing logic to support that so that no. logical structure you're on about um and so you see solid examples of that when he explains his version of truth to brother. Um, and when uh, he says near the beginning, I think, um, that there was always a sign for the man who watched for them. And so we all know the kind of person who, well, everyone does it. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a human brain thing. You look for signs to support your predetermined conclusion and you give yeah. more weight to those. Except Confirmation kind of, bias. Confirmation bias, thank you. It's like a religious version of that. Um, but yeah, he is mad. <laughs> he is completely... <laughs> he is mad and his motivation is that he thinks he's right. And <laughs> I, think, I think it's not just that he thinks he's right, though. I think, you know, I was saying uh, brother's motivation is largely wanting the best for people. I think mm-hmm. there's a parallel to that in Vorbis. I think he also wants what's best for people. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. And that's what he's right about in his head. Yeah. Like, nobody, like we said it a million times, no one's a villain in their own story. No. Vorbis is doing what he thinks is best. It's just he is more convinced than most people that whatever he thinks is best must be best. Yeah. Um. <sighs> I think it's a really good expansion on uh, the Duke's character from Weird Sisters, who, again, had done this kind of coming through the other side of the madness. But his only real motivation was power and to keep his wife quiet. I'm not sure I see many parallels between them at all, apart from that one line. Well, no, I mean, the the way that they constructed their own version of logic on the other side of madness. That's the parallel I mean. Sure. So this is a more interesting version of that, where the yeah, Duke yeah, had... Yeah. The Duke had done that, but his motivation was power. Vorbis has done that, but his motivation is much more murky and complex. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I I think this is just a much, much cleverer book than I thought than yeah. I'd previously given it credit for, basically. Like Vorbis's character is really well developed for something that's quite hard then to talk about because 
like throughout, like there are quotes like men should not travel, brother, at the center. There is truth as you travel, so error creeps in. And when he's referencing physical travel, but you know, as you read on, you realize you can take it as reflective of his thought patterns as well. Yeah. If you let in external influence, you are going to corrupt the truth the that truth you've built yourself. for yourself. And you know, there's got to be a bit of subconscious itch of fear at the back there. You can't risk being proved wrong because then everything falls apart. Exactly. Um, and it's an interesting conflict with his other main trait, which is kind of scientific curiosity. Um, yeah. Because he's he's incredibly closed-minded, but at the same time willing to experiment to add to his knowledge. I think it goes along with that confirmation bias thing. He's very curious, but he has expected outcomes and will only mm. almost notice those outcomes that fit his expectations. That's a good point, yeah, because last time we were talking about brother... Um, and how he treated him in a way that wouldn't really make sense. But Vorbis wanted to see him like this, and so it was fine. Yeah, it was a faith and belief version of putting the turtle on its back and wedging stones underneath. Yeah, yeah. Which, actually, I think when he did that, there was a line that said uh, Vorbis would turn a god on its back Yeah, to see what happened, which I guess is what he did with Om. Um, Yeah. Also, can we just... Take a moment to briefly enjoy the mental image of Vorbis just fucking yeeting a tortoise across the desert. Yeah, <laughs> that poor little tortoise. I feel very sorry for the tortoise. But yeah, um, so Vorbis also, I don't know how much he noticed the parallels that Pratchett drew between Vorbis and the eagle throughout. Um, so I think Basically, his, his self-belief was so strong that he brought, he put himself above all else. He put himself as the as the eagle or the god. Yeah. And they're just a little bit scattered throughout. So, like on the in the second section somewhere, there's Vorbis looking out at the circle C. Vorbis has very good eyesight from a height, is the quote. Mm. Um tying in with the description of the eagle's eyesight a few yeah. chapters earlier. <sighs> and then you've got nearer the end as he's explaining kind of why he's twisting his version of the events in the desert that is interspersed with paragraphs of what the eagle's up to at the time yeah and kind yeah and then because i feel like what he's done basically is he's believing in himself so much and in such a kind of amplifying echo that he's kind of made himself a god yeah and because the the parallels between eagle and god are also mentioned uh, when on pops up there and then one other little tip that i thought might tie in with that is the fact that vorbis's eyes are completely black oh which yeah is what fate has and what all gods have these like solid eyes that they can't change i don't know mm. or that might just be the fact that black eyes wouldn't reflect anything and therefore you could only look in and that's all that there is there's nothing yeah i don't know and then the other bit about Vorbis um, is something that quite happily I found a, a listener agreeing with me about before, like I even talked about it, which is nice. Um, nice. Kind of, I was I was playing with the idea that Vorbis and Vetinari are two sides of the same coin. Oh yeah, I can kind of see that. So in that they both have this scientific experimental mind and they both consider themselves above the populace as they rule on this completely separate level in a way where the, the plebs don't need to know the truth, truth kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think the main difference is that Vetinari is open-minded and like willing 
keen even to kind of learn from Lady Margalotta, from Leonard of Querm, from Vimes uh, even. Yeah. Um, and he remains detached, but does kind of seem to value them as entities rather than just as data points. Yeah, whereas Vorbis feels the need to be in control of the entire populace, he almost, he almost feels entitled to it. Mm, mm. And like I said, there is this kind of hard love and creating the world he thinks is best for them because he is most holy and knows best. Yeah. With Vetinari, there is, well, I want to make this all work for everyone. Yeah, and Vetinari doesn't seem to think he's better uh, or more holy or a more good person. He just thinks I am the best person to make this work properly. Yeah. You know, by all evidence, he does seem to be. It's almost Vetinari is taking on a responsibility and views it yeah. as such, whereas Vorbis, again, feels more entitled to this by right. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, on the subreddit, um, one of our listeners, uh, Harp Molly, shout out to Harp Molly, uh, commented saying that she has thoughts on Vorbis, capitalized, uh, which could be found in her post history. So obviously I went to look. Um, and yeah, she also saw parallels between the two characters, which was cool, um, and referenced uh, a quote in this book that was brought up when she was reading a book later on in the watch arc, which mm. I won't talk about, uh, but where Vetinari's actions reminded her of Vorbis's quote, I know the breaking strain of people, which sounds very much like something Vetinari would say. It does sound very much like something Vetinari would say. Yeah. Um, yes. So I like that. I will be quietly keep, keep, thinking keep about that as I'm yeah, <laughs> reading Vetinari's stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got like a whole bunch of other crap written down, but I think that's all the important stuff. That's <laughs> if you've got anything else you want to say on Vorbis before we move on, I'm, no, I'm I don't into think, your thoughts. No, no, I don't think so. I think that's enough analyzing a complete mental person for now. <laughs> that's not the right way to say a, a really like black hole echo of it's just such an interesting concept that he's managed to amplify his own thoughts to the point of being god oh oh and when he dies just the the grief as his mind is forcibly opened and he realizes his entire belief system is nothing it's nothing yeah That's that moment when he breaks down escapes, yeah <laughs> that moment of him completely breaking down in the yeah. uh in death's desert yeah it's very sh- it schadenfreude 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 thank you and that moment when brother eventually is at the desert when he's passed away peacefully a hundred years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just sort of sighs and goes, fine. Come on then. Come yeah. On. And that, like, there's a quote there, isn't there, that Vorbis's great evil or talent or something was that he changed people and then immediately after this demonstration that he did not change brother. Brother is still brother. Yeah. Yeah. And that uh, that brings me a lot of joy. But yeah, I hadn't, noticed, I hadn't really thought about the uh, parallels between him and the eagle, actually. Yeah, um... I'll I'll mention that again later in the uh, talking points, just because it's it's one of the bits of symmetry I noticed. But um, yeah, it, it sprung to mind when the eagle eyesight kind of thing was yeah. mentioned, and then I kind of flicked back to see if it yeah it kind of interspersed it throughout. As I said, Pratt is just super clever in this book. Like, it is not such a clever book, but, yeah. <laughs> but this is one of yeah. the ones that you sort of look at and go, oh, oh, isn't it good? Yeah. It's good. good. It's good. I um, like Terry Pratchett. <laughs> right, let's try and race through locations because I've massively top-heavied this 
with the uh, characters. Yeah, sorry, I got really absorbed in your thesis and put down the episode plan. It is to such an extent an essay that I'm I'm thinking of putting it on our blog um, after editing, and then Ooh, I'll, I'll add your bits in as well if that's cool. Yeah, I'll see if I can actually articulate my thoughts beyond. I think so. It would be quite cool if, like, some of our particularly well ranted bits <laughs> made it onto the blog. That might be quite fun. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, locations. There's only two. Obviously, we don't really go anywhere new apart from the desert. But there's a couple of bits that I found interesting. Uh, one of which is the Lion's Den, which is the mm. temple of an old dead god, which was another really good horror moment. Yeah. And like these books aren't the most horrific of them, but Pratchett does occasionally write very good horror moments. And this is this whole sort of uh, each drop took minutes. And these stalactites that have been growing, the sand and rubble filled temple that must have once been a huge, mighty tower. There were no whispering voices here. Even the small gods kept away from abandoned temples for the same reason people kept away from graveyards. Yeah. And the horror that Om feels specifically, brothers, you know, just sort of curious about it and glad he's found water. Yeah. And says, Oh, do you know who was who was the god here? And Om is fucking horrified. It's like he's come face to face with an unexpected corpse. Yeah. And if you actually look at the parallels between that moment and brother coming across the grave in the desert. Oh, yeah. There's uh, two very different kinds of horror. Yeah. Um, because in Yeah, this, they're the, both um, more symbolic than... Than just graves. Yeah, and yeah. they are both graves. Yeah. Huh. So I thought that was, that was a really good moment. Yeah. And then obviously the other main thing is uh, obviously Cory Celesti, which we've been to before. Uh, way, way back, many centuries ago, in uh, the color of magic. Probably a century ahead. Who can say with Rincewind? Uh- <laughs> Look, time is meaningless. <laughs> was it I said the other day? Time, time is, is money. money, and both are meaningless. Yay! I'm going to write that up in beautiful calligraphy for you one day because it's a, a terrible, wonderful quote. I love you so much, uh, Corey Celesti, where the gods live, but they're very elitist. And only yeah. certain gods are allowed to live up there, like Blind Io, the Thunder God, who's actually about 18 different Thunder Gods and just wears false moustaches. Yeah, it's quite cool, isn't it? Like, little reference to the fact that the half of the Greek and Roman gods were the same, I'm guessing. That must have happened yeah. loads of times for various pantheons. It's another rabbit hole they didn't go down. Well, yeah, and sort of religions pick and choose different gods that yeah. sound a bit fun, like a Phoebe's just sort of got all of them because it's all quite entertaining for them. Yeah. But yeah, Om eventually sort of strolls into Corey Celesti when he's got his high godness on and tells them to stop playing fucking right. board games. <laughs> I like that the newt's there. I like that the newt's there and he doesn't know if 51 is... A, yep, <laughs> I've got a stake. I've got 51 believers. Is that good? Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. I like that more of a picture is being painted of Corey Celesti. Yeah, yeah. And I like the like grid lines over the map, like it's some kind of sort of D and D type yeah. board yeah, or yeah. Warhammer or something. <laughs> so yeah, that was the only stuff I really had on places that we go and things that we see. Cool. All right. Okay, so yeah, little bits we liked. Uh, Didactylos's theories of disc physics. This has got some parallels to lots of early beliefs uh-huh. about how everything worked. I didn't go deep dive into which Greek philosopher believed what to the best because i'm not no. sure they did really <laughs> no no, no, <laughs> one knew, 
Well, it's kind of hard because they would write these plays where they'd put their philosopher mates in and have them agree with them. So it's yeah. like, did Socrates say that or did Plato writing Socrates say that? Yeah. And some of them only had their opinions written down by their apprentices who might have just, you know, edited it a bit. But... Yeah. Uh, which is one of the other bits, the belief that uh, the heart is where thinking happens and the yeah. brain just happens to call the blood. I think that one was Aristotle. And quite often these things were just like taken as beliefs for a really long time. Yeah, because makes as much sense as anything else kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, People so. die if you get rid of this bit, so. But the, um, the who is this? Uh, Expletius proved that the disc was 10,000 miles across. Mm-hmm. Febrius stationed slaves with quick reactions and carrying voices all across the country at dawn. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. proves that light travels about the same speed as sound. Uh, Didactus reasons that in that case, in order to pass between the elephants, the sun has to travel at least 35,000 miles in its orbit every day, or twice as fast as its own light. Yeah. Which means that mostly you could ever see where the sun had been, except twice a day where it caught up with itself. And that meant the whole sun was a faster than light particle, a tachyon, or as Didactylos put it, a bugger. <laughs> if any of our listeners want to explain quantum mechanics to me, please don't. <laughs> Just go and take a cold shower and reassess your priorities. I can't uh, take it. My poor little brain. Uh, some of the stuff about like working out how uh, big the Earth is, how much it weighs, stuff like that, um, is quite fun to learn about. And Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything has some nice summaries of like uh, how shit Victorian got era out. stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the ancient Greeks managed to work out quite a lot. Well, even before that as well, there were earlier civilizations that calculated things like the curvature of Earth based on shadows and maths Yeah, quite accurately. Not that um, else to do back then, was there? Once you know the curvature, it's quite easy to work out the size. Hundreds of years until the frog play came out. Yeah, nothing else to do. <laughs> A couple thousand until Netflix. Yeah. So Which doesn't well have the frog play, what? <laughs> At some point, I'll double check. We've gone the wrong way. We don't have ancient Greek theatre on Netflix. Uh, I'll never start. I'll never stop thinking about that picture of like what the Victorians thought this century would be like, just walking on water powered by balloons, kind of thing. I love the it so much. Action being, we've gone the wrong way. Go back. <laughs> you make retro, this happen. Retro futurism. That's, yeah, that's the it. word that's we're thinking of. Yeah, and that's uh, it's all very fun. I really like past depictions of what the future is going to be like absolutely uh, Fall, um, fallout does that quite well in the specific uh oh i've forgotten the term for it but the you know the atomic era yes very much so um but yeah so the disc physics bit is quite amusing because mm. it's then carried on as a thread that the sun is there but if didactylos is right actually the sun's setting right now yeah <laughs> and obviously there's some little kernel of truth in that uh, the stars are so far away that by the time the light reaches us, they will have already died. So we're always looking at dead stars, which is a lovely thought. Yeah. Uh, and he, Pratchett kind of put in a nice little slide. And of course, it doesn't really matter because we need to deal with this not a game right now. <laughs> yes. There's quite a lot of other things going on, but just keep in the yeah, background you know. of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you had Didactylos's wisdom. Oh, yeah, no, that's what you were talking about right at the beginning uh, with the characters, basically. Oh, Didactylos yeah. saying, if you build this, other people will we'll use it for things you for didn't it. want it to be used for. And then it's like, well, no, it's fine. I mean, then we'll build a bigger one. And Didactylos is like, 
I really need you to think this through, lad. And unfortunately, <laughs> he doesn't until sometime later. But you know, Lucy manages to fuck the iron up, so that's all right. Yeah, there's the wisdom versus the sort of brashness of youth of I'll make yeah. it and figure out the consequences later. Yeah, yeah. Whereas by the time man's made it, Didactylos has worked out all of the consequences. Yeah. Like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. <laughs> and this is this is actually another fun theme Pratchett plays with. Of, uh, something we get, especially more in later books, is, okay, what if this thing comes to the disc? Yeah. And everyone starts playing with it before the thinking it through. And yeah. then we see the consequences of it. We'll see it with the semaphore and the methods of communication is a big yeah. one. Yeah, and trains. Trains, uh, newspapers. Newspapers, yeah. All God, I can't wait to get to that one. I know. He's got a fascination with steam that permeates throughout, hasn't he? We've come, we've had steam a couple times already. Yeah, well, we have the um, combination harvester back in Reaper Man. Yeah. And there is some actual science behind the devices that Ern is building, these steam powered things. Yeah, I looked at some of the old, the old stuff. That was quite cool. Uh, Annotated Pratchett is great for comparable. explaining a bit. Yeah. 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 Annotated Pratchett has some good explanations of what oh, the cool. fuck Ern is doing. <laughs> I'll link to that then. I'm sure he put it more eloquently. He, he did. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So the foreshadowing stuff, I talked about this last yeah, week, yeah. just really, really clever Pratchetty writing of the way he hints at things to come. Mm-hmm. And one of the moments that I noticed in this one is there is a scribe taking notes as everything happens um, and the new sort of the new religion stuff happening. Uh, but the scribe is taking notes of what has happened, especially brother approaching Forbis and interrupting the sort of inauguration moment. Yeah. And the last bit of Dibbler's explanation, and this is before everything has been resolved, there's no truth whatsoever in the rumour that I ran away at this juncture. It was just the pressure of the crowd, and I've never been a friend of the Quisition. Yeah. So before everything has been resolved, there's this little foreshadowing moment that the Quisition will stop being the major part of the power. Yeah, there was, um, oof, there was, sorry, something else in that bit as well. It was like really heavy-handed foreshadowing, isn't it? Like for, for Pratchett, usually yeah. he's... Uh, a, Very subtle. Yes, yeah. When he wants to be, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, fuck me, where is Subtle it? Subtle as an eagle dropping a tortoise. Yeah, this is so unhelpful with our completely mismatched page numbers, I must say. But yeah, anyway, yes, that, that was the main bit of it. But I like that Diddler is a like, minor prophet as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this version of Diddler has a lovely time, actually. I'm just generally very pleased for him. Yeah, he's involved. He's involved. He There's also he a fun... called out for his terrible yoghurt. There's a fun moment where it describes him sidling as he sidles so much, even crabs think he walks sideways. Yeah. <laughs> and there is something about that sort of person who sort of scuttle, sort of has an oozy scuttle. And he's got a little bit more common sense than you might give him credit for, because like he can tell that the Borbis brother story isn't quite what it seems, but he's like, oh, no, it's all right. Yeah, nods as good as a wink to a blind camel with a mule. You know what I mean? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> nods as good a wink as... Not as good as a poke with a sharp stick to a deaf camel. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I was trying to find what the original saying is, and it's uh, not as good as a wink to a blind horse. Right. Does that make any more sense? Well, the idea is that 
he's blind, so he can't tell if you're nod- nodding or winking. Yeah. So it's not good at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But my brain was so sure that the line is a nod's as good as a wink to a blind badger. And I realised that's entirely because of the Louise Renison, the Georgia Nicholson books. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Oh, man. God, those good books. <laughs> yeah. So recap that- of those when we're done with this, this whole just as broadly disc world thing. <laughs> We'll do the Georgia Nicholson series, yeah. Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging. we from this universe. <laughs> <laughs> See you in the next life, don't be late. I'm away <laughs> laughing on a fast camel. <laughs> right, sorry, quoting books that are probably not that relevant to our listeners. I've got a camel. Um, bum, universe, bum, bum. coiled universe. up. Yeah, uh, this is back on Corey Celeste when we were talking about the map with the grid on it and everything. I just like... Om hadn't seen this before, but he knew what it was. Both a wave and a particle. Both a map and the place mapped. If you focused on the tiny tiny glittering dome on top of the tiny Cory Celesti, he would undoubtedly see himself looking down on an even smaller model. And so on, down to the point where the universe coiled up like the tail of an ammonite. Just the kind of fractal geometry, more physics of the universe kind of stuff. Actually, it ties in with your one. Yeah, the infinite regress. Yeah, thank you. I could only think of the word fractal. I didn't even know what to Google. Infinite regress. Good luck. Should have just checked our show notes from last week. I forgot last week. <laughs> That's when I was talking about turtles all the way down. Oh yeah, no, I do remember that now. But the, yeah, there was a there was a cave. Uh... But that's kind of what this thing is <laughs> like. The disc is. There's then a smaller what, what version of the disc, and then there's a smaller one yeah. in that, and a smaller one in that, and, a, and it's and it's turtles all the way down. Except in this case, yeah. the turtles have four elephants and an entire world on their back. Yeah, and it's like physics. Physicists go on about if you give them the chance in this world as well. It's the no, no, you don't get it. It's the same pattern. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why I try not to have too many intense conversations with physicists. A, a rule I think we should all live by. Yes, yeah. Although you let them go off for a while, like they. They can kind of get some knowledge into you by osmosis, I think, but it's quite difficult to directly understand. Yeah, that, I mean, that's true of quite a lot of things for me. True. We go through life doing the equivalent of Brother with his uh, scrolls in the library. Yeah, I, I'll take but all of it in. here. <laughs> I'll make sense of it one day. I'm learning. <laughs> I'm going to put it in here and like a month <laughs> later... If only we had the kind of memory retention, though. The desert to fill up rather than the sandy sieve. <laughs> mm, nice. <laughs> all right, all right. Talking points. Let's. Should we go on to the big stuff? Yeah, yeah. That was me first. It is. Do you want to talk to me about symmetry? Oh, actually, do you know what? Can we do yours first? Because I've got a nice bit to wrap up with. Excellent, yes. Let's do that. Let's let me ramble on about faith, yeah. belief, and the general nature of gods, then, shall yeah. we? Yeah, it's like physicists, except uh, it's me word vomiting about religion. <laughs> your philosopher, where's your sponge? <laughs> Fuck! I meant to have a sponge handy. <laughs> I was going to hold one up. You're going to laugh. It's oh, going to be amazing. It's going to be a thing. Never mind. It's going to be a bit. Never mind. Next week, maybe. Next week, even funnier things. I won't be expecting it. I wouldn't have expected this time, but I expected it. But you know, all right. I mean, I'm just gonna, like the Spanish. I'm going to put myself on mute and let you talk. <laughs> uh, we don't even have an episode next week, so I'm just going to have to send oh, yeah, you. A, <laughs> I'm just going to have to send you a picture of me with a sponge. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> it's all getting a bit weird now, don't? 
Okay, yeah. So faith and belief in the general nature of gods. And the big thing that, uh, big sticking thing of this section is you don't need to believe in something that is there because it just is there. And this thing I brought up coming back and back to that uh, postman analogy from Witches Abroad. Uh, so Om finds water in the desert and it's um, it's miraculous that he yeah. has found water in the desert, but he has done it by logically digging down until he found water. Yeah. And brother sort of said, well it's not a miracle you worked it out and i was like there's what this is water in the desert it's a fucking miracle go with it mate yeah and brother slowly moves his belief over to ethics which becomes the big central thing he doesn't need to believe in om because he knows om exists especially in tortoise form because tortoises are so eminently believable and solid hard not to believe in the tortoise when it's right there so he focuses on this slightly more intangible thing of ethics, which obviously Om takes very logically and thinks of it as a country that Fee wanted to yeah. invade. And that belief in something intangible is what allows him to negotiate with Om, who he is completely certain of because he's there being a god in front of him. Yeah. And it allows him to bring that intangibility into it. And yeah. it's it's interesting as I've talked about the parallels to atheism and this idea of if you don't, believe in punishment and divine retribution then you have to make the active choice to be a good person because you think it is for the best thing yes and this is somewhat where brother ends up on that side not atheism he's obviously not an atheist because the gods are right fucking there and he still believes in om hard enough to keep him going yeah until the rest of them join in so and he continues to believe in on them but he believes in it and kind of well of course i believe in this big physical tangible thing in front of me (laughs) Uh, but his choice to be good and want the best for people comes from something much more intangible that isn't yeah. about religion or faith. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting place for the story to end up, especially when the book interrogates why we need gods um, and why gods need people. Yeah. And there's this great little sort of moment of walking and talking and arguing. The desert thing really kind of lets the book go into this belief in a lot more detail because there's nothing much for Om and Brothers to do but walk, talk and yeah, kill a snake. Yeah, it's, it's dialogue and brief snake interlude. And yeah, so gods need people and belief is the food of gods, but they need a shape and they become what people ought to be, which is why you have the goddess of wisdom carrying a penguin because it was meant to be an owl, but the sculptor had only ever had an owl described to him. So penguin. Yeah. Which is a really bad description of an owl. Well, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the fucking owl. <laughs> Penguin. Um, but this is, yeah, they, they love the kind of hatred of atheists as well because it's atheists like Simony, the anti-theist is that it's so powerful it's almost a belief of its own mm-hmm. because they're so present in those people's minds. They're so conscious of these gods they are refusing to believe in. Yeah, yeah. Um, which comes back to Simony's great line of don't think you can get around me by existing. But it goes into, you know, that's why gods need humans. They need the food of belief. Uh, Why do humans need gods? And Om sort of says something along the lines of, well, if people have got to believe in something, otherwise, why does it thunder? And brother has the explanation of the science behind it. It accords because this happens when this, this and this. And Om says, that's an explanation. It's not a reason. Yeah, yeah. And this is a theme that Pratchett will come back to 
um, there will be a very, very beautiful thing said about this sort of thunder and the sun rising yeah. in the book we talk about in December. So I won't go into the quote now. <laughs> but it comes back to what I talked about uh, back in Witches Abroad with the power of story mm-hmm. as something that unites us. And its belief is the same thing. It's the why of things. I need to believe in God so I can believe that thunder happens because Om is taking his sandals off. Yes. It's an explanation for things that we don't have the explanation for. And even when you've got the scientific explanation, sometimes the intangible is something more powerful and meaningful to you. Yeah. And so his brother has the exact nature of gods laid out before him, explained to him to the point where he doesn't need to believe in them because they're just there. He, he, again, he finds this intangible. I don't, I know that there is or isn't divine retribution. I know, but I believe that people should be good for the sake of being good and because it is the best thing for everyone and the ethical thing. Yeah. Hmm. So I think where we started in this book with the nature of faith and where we come to is a really lovely thing where it becomes about so much more than the faith in someone with a big stick saying, do the thing. Yeah. And more the faith in the ability for someone to do the thing for themselves. Yeah, to come to come to their own conclusion. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's all I'm going to say on faith and religion today. Because nice. otherwise, I don't have much to add to that. That was just nice. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> so talk to me about symmetry. Okay. Um. So Pratchett, very clever, very clever man, good writer. Noticed. Uh, tied a lot of things together in this book, like way more than usual, and it had me metaphorically corkboard string all over the place um actually god i wish i'd had a corkboard for this one that would have been properly murderer looking yeah (laughs) Um, anyway um yeah so just a couple of the bits that i particularly liked because like if you if you read through it you can just like make yeah the drawing pin connections through so Mm -hmm. much of it but uh so I liked Didactylos and Om both ending up similarly tongue-tied, feeling the same way in front of crowds of their worshippers. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that the book, right near the end of the book, Om's quote, I'm on my back and getting hotter and I'm going to die, is echoed exactly by brother at the end of the book. Yeah. That was quite cool. Um, I like to bring it back to brother and Vorbis again, that when brother is close to death after Borbis hits him in the head, um, mm-hmm. he's in a desert surrounded by crowds. That's his dream. His dream. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was inverted comments. You can't see listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Borbis dies, he's in a desert alone, but death can see the crowds that so he can't. Yeah. So Parallel the, yeah, images. The, yeah, it's the same desert, but brother can't. No, Vorbis can't see the crowds because, you know, his whole thing is he's only him. Yeah. Um, Whereas Brother very much believes in other people. Yeah. So, yeah. But then last but definitely not least, this is when I've got my, like, intense conspiracy face on. I'm sorry. It's mm-hmm. like the opening passage is a summary of the entire book. Um, now, consider the tortoise and the eagle. And I won't read this entire thing. The eagle is described as this powerful creature at above who can do all kinds of shit. And yeah, it will sit for hours and survey until it finds one small thing which will focus on, leap, 
bring it up, make it feel like it's flying, and then let go, which is exactly what mm-hmm. Orbis does and is trying to do with brother. And then right. this passage finishes up. And then, sorry, then the, this is again with the eagle being like Vorbis, who says, um, it's simply the delight of eagles to torment horses. They're not doing it for any good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it finishes up. But of course, what the eagle does not realize is that it is p- participating in a very crude form of natural selection. One day, a tortoise will learn how to fly. And brother, through being picked up by Vorbis' eagle, becomes the yes. tortoise who learns to fly and then because of that Vorbis dies but then because of an actual flying tortoise it all ties it, you know you know you know what yeah. i'm saying anyway this is kind of like a heavily veiled blurb of the whole thing mm-hmm. but and much better than the actual like blurb. a little fable yeah 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 excellent yeah, that's awesome. well that uh i think yeah. that wraps up the book perfectly yeah much neater than usual yeah, look at us not just fading off in a name rambling for a change. <laughs> I don't think I've got anything to add to that, but I think that's a really good thing you've pointed out that I hadn't entirely picked up on. We can thank the eagle for that, because I was going back to look for eagle references, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Thanks, eagle. Thanks, eagle. Uh, and uh, yeah. One minor note that what Om does isn't technically possible, because the anatomy of birds is not the same as the anatomy of mammals. Oh, yeah. Some birds have external genitalia. Not eagles. Not eagles, you checked, did you? All right. I did check. <laughs> um, so our new excellent phrase, grab the eagle by the balls, is not going to take off then, as it were. Unfortunately not, no. Hmm. Uh, but to come very come full circle, just as the book does, back to our first episode on this, uh, and this idea of a tortoise being dropped this is uh apparently what happened to Aeschylus Aeschylus, Aeschylus the yes. playwright yes which is how Pratchett came up with the idea for the book kind of yes the, the spark that set the fire in the tortoise in a manner of speaking <laughs> we were doing so well taking it too far taking it too far sorry um, <laughs> Francine do you have an obscure reference vineyard for me yeah, uh, the conversation that Vorbis and Brother have after they come back from the desert takes place in a little garden in the centre of the citadel, just behind mm-hmm. the temple. Um, and perhaps it makes a note of describing the elder tree in there, which is huge and ancient, quite unlike its short-lived relatives outside the garden, and its berries were ripening. Um, an elder tree, of course, has a lot of folklore and symbolism associated with it. Yeah. But uh, I assume in this sense, it's having an elder near the back door is meant to ward off evil spirits. And so this is the back door of the temple, massive elder tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And an interesting side note that might also be relevant, especially because it's in Brewers, um, is that Judas is meant to have been hung from an elder. Um, oh. And some say the cross that Christ was crucified on was made from Elder, although it's probable these last two things were introduced into the mythos by Christians who wanted the pagan tree to have bad connotations. Because ah. it's really hard to make big stuff from Elder because it's not a very big tree. Yes, it's not the right sort of wood for that sort of thing. Correct. Anyway, yeah. I know about woodwork. Awesome. Yeah. So I went went for a horticultural reference today, which is difficult in a desert, but we did it. <laughs> well done, us. Well, I think that's literally everything we could ever say 
about small gods. Just not true. <laughs> not How many slightly. times in the past three weeks have we said, but I didn't go down that research rabbit hole. <laughs> that is literally... time is finite for us. <laughs> literally everything we could say considering how much of an allowance we have for how many hours of material yeah. we can release per month yeah yeah and how many hours we can set aside to go into random obscure books dug out from underneath the coffee table look there are like eight powerpoint presentations that didn't make it into these episodes mate you are so lucky i didn't have an extra day off this week otherwise you would have got a powerpoint presentation on Borbis. that would have happened i thought about it i decided i did not have time but Please look out for our fuller expanded thesis on the character of Forbis eventually coming up on Bonus our blog. content. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus content, inane ranting, but with paragraphs. Might even have like a separate feed of me with the complete mad conspiracy face on. Excellent. And we'll do some court calls and see? <laughs> The eagle, eagle is, the bad, is the god, but also Forbis. It's right there in the beginning. <laughs> Open your eyes, sheeple. <laughs> goat, goat, goat people. <laughs> people. It doesn't work. People. Open your eyes, people. <laughs> Camelipal. <laughs> All right. Well, we've officially descended mm, into madness. Yeah, okay. I think that's probably about enough. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Two Shall Make You Fret. We're going to take a week off and for our sanity, <laughs> for everyone's sanity and we will be back on the 1st of March with the first of our episodes on the next Discworld novel. Yeah, right? Uh, so yeah, we'll be back on the 1st of March uh, with the first episode on the next Discworld novel, Lords and Ladies. We're going back yes. to see the witches again. Which, by the way, our awesome new listener, uh, what, what was he, Harp Molly, said she was particularly looking forward to, so winner. Well, we'll make it good. We'll make it good. So many PowerPoints. Oh. <laughs> Look, if there's an episode that's just me reenacting the entirety of Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm not sorry. Anyway, in the meantime, until then, dear listener, mm. uh, you can keep an eye out for, buy tickets for, and get ready for Lamados on the Clax, the online Discworld convention happening from the 3rd of March to the 5th of March. We will link to the website for tickets, etc. in the show notes. There's going to be cosplay contests. There's going to be a radio play. There's going to be panels. We're going to be on a panel about Discworld podcasting. 5th to the 7th. 5th to the 7th. That's what I meant. We are going to be on a panel about Discworld podcasting on the 7th of March at 3 o'clock. Tickets are only 20 quid and the proceeds are all going to excellent causes like the Wales Ape Sanctuary. So more details about that in the show notes on Twitter, etc. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at the Truth Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the Truth Shall Make You Fret. You can join our subreddit, r slash TTSMYF. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, albatrosses, and snacks, the Truth Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. Very important. You don't try and explain quantum to us over any of those channels. Please. I think we said this like right at the beginning. Yeah. like We've got a lot of repeating themes. Quantum, mostly. Don't try and explain quantum. Don't try and explain cricket. Yeah, but never, ever contact us about the rules of cricket. Thank you. 
Um, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get a podcast because algorithms, it helps other people find us. And most importantly, tell other people about us who you think might enjoy it. Tell Thank them, you to please. the people tell who them. listened to me last week and went on Facebook and reviewed us. Much appreciated. Yes. Thank you very much. And thank you to people who've been tweeting about us and things. We love you. Yeah. And in the meantime, dear listener, death watched them walk away. fun so i'm thinking title open your eyes geeple yeah i like it see that or eternal internal argument which is possibly more relevant but not as funny i like both okay. go, with your, go with your gut okay go with your geeple <laughs> <laughs> oh i made it bad i'm sorry <laughs>